0: You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. It's good to be here with you today. So let me ask you a quick question. Let's kind of bring in last week and put it into this week real quick. So what has captured your vision? What has captured your vision. Paul the Apostle says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, and I would be no different. So when I was a child, what had my vision was pretty much sports and video games. I think that was pretty much the summary of life. If I wasn't outside playing baseball, football, basketball, something with the neighborhood kids, I was at home playing video games, practicing sports on the game, on the Nintendo, or yes, I know that dates me if I go NES, uh, or even the Intellivision, come on, anybody remember those? Yeah, no, three of you, good. Anyway, so that was pretty much uh, my life as a child. But then I became a middle schooler and God opened my eyes that, oh my goodness, he created two genders. And he took more time on the second one than he did on the first one, I think. And so in my middle school years, my vision changed from, hey, I just want to be good at sports and video games to, I want to be good at sports and video games and life. And so um, as I got older, God started to change that more and more and more. By the time I was in early high school, I believe it was like a freshman in high school, God had, or my vision had so expanded to, I didn't know what I wanted to do in life, like any freshman or senior for that matter. I didn't know what I wanted to do next, but I knew this. I wanted to make a lot of money. I wanted to be really successful. I wanted to build a name for myself, and uh, that was going to be the marker for my life, and here I was, a freshman, and I knew exactly how that was going to unfold, but I was going to go after it with everything I had, and then I remember the day that God started to change it, okay, so it was actually a Sunday, I went to church, see, I grew up in pretty much the same church almost my whole life, a church of about 250 people, smaller church, and we had something called Sunday school, how many of you guys remember Sunday school? See, okay, some of you grew up in churches like I did. And uh, Sunday school was, uh, for those of you who don't know, it was basically school on Sunday. <laughs> Pretty good description, right? So for the average freshman in high school who didn't really look forward to school, let alone Sundays, this was not on my calendar as a life-changing moment. So I went to church that day, typical, we were late. Uh, I was an elder's kid, so we were always at church, and so I didn't have any great expectation. I thought I'd show up, and our our small Sunday school class ranged from, you know, 5 to 15 students, usually at that particular period. And I showed up and found out that there was a a college group that was from some college Christian College in Cincinnati, who was at my church that Sunday. I didn't even know that much. And one of them had been appointed to teach. Now, in the first few minutes of him teaching, he said, hey, guys, uh, I'm not really good at teaching. This is only like the second time I've ever done it. So I automatically tuned him out. I really wasn't that interested in what he said. And then he said, I just want to read you guys some notes from one of my classes. I thought, could this get any more boring? So he pulled out his notebook full of notes and he flipped to page one and he started reading and I really wasn't all that interested until he got to this part. He got to this part where apparently in one of his classes they had talked extensively about a Josh McDowell book and then later there was a doctor, an MD, who literally studied the crucifixion of Christ and wrote out what he believes is happening based off the biblical text and historical um, recordings. And he went in graphic detail, explaining how Jesus would have been hungry and dehydrated, his last meal being at the last supper. And following that up, he's you know, arrested, praying in the garden, uh, capillaries on his forehead bursting, mixing blood and sweat together. He talked about how, as Jesus was traveled to Pilate and Herod and Herod to Pilate and back again, as he's literally marching around, we have no recording that they gave him any food or drink. And as his body became more and more tired, he's carrying his own chains, and it seems like at each trial, he's taking more and more of a beating. My heart began to soften, and I started to listen more. His delivery wasn't very good, but his words got my attention. He then went into the cat of nine tails and the flogging. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, well, I think think Mel took it probably a step or two further than it actually was. It wasn't that far off if you've seen it. The cat of nine tails was a whip with leather strips, or usually about nine, that's where it got its name, coming off the the leather handle. And each of those had something different on the end of them. Some had heavy things like uh, rocks or lead balls. And those were intended to tenderize the, the meat, the muscle of the back. It would hit and make things soft, creating bruises. And then there were small pieces of stone or bone attached to the other nine tails, whatever was left. And those were intended to grab the flesh and rip and strip... And, uh, and, and tear skin, and muscle, and tendon, and aren't you glad you came to church today? And as he went on, he described the crucifixion. This is why Jesus was so depleted. He couldn't even carry his own cross, whereas the other thieves, as far as we know, carried their own cross all the way up. But Jesus was so worn out from lack of energy, lack of drink, loss of body fluids, the flogging itself, We believe historically that most people were not flogged and crucified. Jesus really was rare, but he had to fulfill what Isaiah told us, that his stripes would carry our sin, our burden, our iniquity. And so as they nailed him to a cross, though in most pictures you see nails going through the hands, and if you come from a Catholic background, I'm not even here to argue that today because I don't really care one way or the other, but this doctor said he doesn't believe that's how it happened because there's no way that the hand could support the weight of the body. Instead, he believed that they put the nail through the wrist, piercing this nerve and tendon there, and that would have had the strength to hold him to the cross, even if they also tied ropes to help tie him up. And as they put his feet onto the cross, see, what would happen is somebody would have to breathe, and in order to breathe, they'd have to pull on those nails, push on the nail in his feet, expanding their chest to be able to take in oxygen. And then they would collapse again where their lungs and everything would just condense And what would happen is over time, they would lose all energy, unable to gather breath. In this particular case, because uh, the Passover was there, they had to get these thieves done and down off the cross. So at the end of it, the reason they went around breaking everybody's legs is so they could no longer push up and take a breath. They would essentially either suffocate from lack of breath, or in some cases, we believe that Jesus, according to this doctor, most likely drown, because as you're fighting for each breath, your body's kind of filling up with carbon dioxide. I'm not a doctor, I don't fully understand it. But what would happen over time is this water gathers and sacks around your lungs, and basically you drown to death. He got done that day, and it was kind of like, well, that's all I have to share. And I was ruined. See, I grew up in a generation of the church, maybe like you too, if you're anywhere close to my age, and here's what I was told through most of my teenage years. If you were the only person in the history of the world to come to faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus still would have died for you. How many of you were told that? I'm here to tell you it's a lie. Okay, maybe it's not a lie, that's a stretch, but it's definitely not the truth. Here's what I mean by that. In Jesus' prayer, just before he goes to the cross, he gathers the disciples together. You can read it in John chapter 17. And Jesus actually prays to the Father, Father, I have delivered to you those you gave me. And he's talking specifically about the apostles, but even beyond the apostles, the disciples. And he says, and their message, God, would you take it to the ends of the earth and would you protect them and may they have unity as a sign to the world. And God, I pray that all of those who come to believe in their message and all those that they're getting to teach, God, would you protect them as well? And then he goes on and he prays for me and he prays for you and he says, God, not just them, but those who are still far off, meaning us, we aren't even created yet, but we were in the father's mind. So there's absolutely no way Jesus ever intended to die just for me. But see, that day, the message I heard, my vision for life expanded to, wow, I want to make a lot of money, have a lot of success, and become something in this life, to, wow, I want to make a lot of money, have a lot of success, because I am really important to God. Do you hear the difference? What I didn't know was on that day, God wanted to plant a seed that had nothing to do with my vision for life, but had everything to do with his vision for my life. Because what happened on that day, at first, it took me probably, I don't know, four to six years to really wrap my head around this. So if you're not there yet, don't be surprised. But what it took me some time to really wrap my head around was that Jesus didn't just come to die for me. Jesus came to die for the whole world. Now, we always knew that theoretically, but at the end of the day, if it wasn't about me, who cares, right? But that's because at that point in my life, I was still very, very, very self-centered, So consequently, every decision I made from that moment on while I having this in the back of my head was through the lens of, does it make me happy? Does it fulfill me? Does it bring me ultimately this goal that I'm heading towards to become significant or wealthy? And I'll never forget the day that God started to take that message and really began to plant it in my heart. I've told it before, but I was actually at a retreat, a, a, a summer camp, where, where God spoke powerfully to me and basically said, I want you to die. And I remember thinking, I don't even know what that means. But it was the day that God called me into ministry. And I remember over that next year, it was my senior year of high school, over that next year, as I began to argue with many people, my parents and others about the vision that I had for my life, how God no longer wanted me to become rich, powerful, successful. He wanted me to become a minister, a pastor. And I remember, literally, it was crazy all the ways that Satan tried to stop me. And here was the number one way Satan tried to stop me. Ready? Fear. One day, my mom was a nurse. My, one day, my mom just happened to be at work, and a guy she was working with was a Methodist minister. And he had spent his whole life as a minister, and he loved it. He served a lot of people, but he was dirt poor. And he was telling her one of his greatest laments is being in ministries. He literally never had funds to take his kids on vacation. He never had uh, money to be able to buy things. He was always dependent on God to do stuff. And my mom came home that day, and I love her. God bless her, but she was afraid for me. And she said, Matt, you better have a backup plan. I said, what do you mean a backup plan, mom? She goes, why don't you get like a dual degree just in case this ministry thing doesn't work out? Look, I don't think my mom would say that today, but that's where she was years ago. (laughs) One, two, skip a few, right? And I remember another time when my dad and I went and visited the college turns out I'd end up at that same college in Cincinnati that those kids came from had no idea what God was up to. And when we visited, if you've ever been to Cincinnati Christian University, used to be called Cincinnati Bible College, um, it's in one of the worst places in Cincinnati. It sits up above something called Price Hill, which is uh, when I was there the second worst area in Cincinnati. I mean there was all kinds of gun shootings and things like that. And we got lost. We ended up in the worst place before we ended up at the second worst place. And when we left that day, my dad said, "I'm not leaving you here." And I don't blame him. I mean, and no parent in the world would send their kids into a difficult environment, right? Knowingly, willingly. But God in every step began to say to me, my vision for your life is bigger than yours. And it's going to require you dying. Not literally, although should the day ever come, maybe. Uh, Honestly, I think it would be easier sometimes to die for Jesus than to live for him. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Now that sounds easy, you know, put me with ISIS and all of a sudden they're putting a gun to your th- you know, throat to cut your head off, that you know, might change my mind. But from this vantage point, it sounds easier to die for Jesus than to live for Jesus because living for Jesus is really hard. It's an everyday grind, it's an everyday battle against everyday life and emotions, isn't it? And it's facing the reality of, of people around me, some who are uh, financially doing better than me, and some who are not, and, and, and then just living in the mix of it. But that day, God planted something in my heart. His vision for life is different than mine. And I think that's true for some of us here today. I think some of us here today have heard that call, got a glimpse of that vision. We've experienced something perhaps on the mission field. If you haven't yet, next year might be your year. We got a a, a vision of it that one time when we helped somebody and we came alive and something changed in us, but we didn't know what to do with it. Life got hard, things got complex, and next thing you know, we're pulling back I just don't have time to, to, to give myself and invest myself in the lives of others. I just don't have the margin that I wish I had to be able to really invest my life in others. And with every single statement of fear, we take a little strength, a little power away from God and what he could do. There's a book just came out by a guy named John Bevere. I, I just started reading. I'm not very far into it. But it's called Kryptonite. And his opening illustration has to do with Superman. My boys love superheroes. They adore superheroes. And every day, they're a different one. And and my youngest son doesn't get it, so he makes up one. His favorite right now is Batman Kitty Superhero. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) But every day, I go to war with Batman Kitty Superhero. Now I'm trying to explain him because my, my one son he's, my one son is my middle son he always goes to I'm every superhero I have every superhero power I'm like that's not fair I said fine then I'm Superman he's like well how are you gonna beat me I have every power I'm like that is Superman like you can't beat Superman so we're fighting and of course he can't beat me because I'm Superman and he's like well Dad is there any way to beat Superman I'm like well yes there is one way how you have to have kryptonite what is kryptonite well it comes from then you're going through the whole story of krypton and blah 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 so then he's making out kryptonite this pillow is kryptonite that's not fair. I'm Superman, you know, and then we're going to war, right? But see, you know this, every hero has a kryptonite. Every hero has a weakness, that thing in their flesh. And when it rises up, it takes away your strength. You lose sight of the things that you thought were most important. You start to focus on other things. And I am convinced, absolutely convinced, at the root of all of those is fear, Fear, whatever it is, that steals your joy, your vision for life, it's fear ultimately. And I love the way Donald Miller says this. Donald Miller says in his book, A Million Miles Out of a Thousand Years, fear is a manipulative emotion that could trick us into living a boring life. The great stories go to those who don't give in to fear. So last week, just to bring you up to speed, that was not just the intro, this is the setup for everything. What I told you last week is this. If you want to live a successful life, if you want to get to the end of your days and stand before your Father in heaven or even at your deathbed surrounded and, and know that you were fulfilled and complete, what you need to do is make sure that you set your highest values here today to match where you want to spend eternity. Set your highest values here today to match wherever it is you want to spend eternity. Now, I want to put for one minute, I realize nobody in this room, okay, very few in this room, very few in this room are financial advisors, okay? Some of you like to think you are, some of you actually are. Nobody in this room, maybe a few, are great financial advisors, but I'm going to ask you for just a moment to play the role of financial advisor, okay? Here's the tale of two people. Tale number one, this lady comes up to you. She's much older in life. Her husband has passed. Her kids are not engaged for whatever the reason being. She's telling you that she can't seem to make the ends meet. She's struggling every month to pay her bills. But she's got these $2 left. And she feels like God is telling her to give the last $2 she has to this homeless person they saw. she saw on the corner. And she looks at you, and she says, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to eat for the rest of the week. What do I do? What would you tell her? Okay, put away for just a moment the fact that you're gonna buy her the meal, because you are, right? Because you all love Jesus. Like, oh, don't worry, I'll take you over here, we'll get you food. No, 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 what are you gonna tell her? You can't pay for somebody else. You don't have the money yourself. Right? Right? because that's what wisdom would say. Now let's say you meet a man and he's extremely successful. He started his own business and boy, it just took off. For reasons he can't even explain, all of a sudden he's just making bank left and right and he comes to you and he says, I'm not exactly sure what to do, I've made like 100% profit this year and I've got all this money. Any thoughts about what I should do with it? Now, what would your advice be to that person? What we tend to say to people today is, well, you know, I tell you what, what you need to do is stock some of that money away in a 401k for the future because you never know you're going to need it someday. And you're going to take some of that money. Why don't you pay off some debt? You got this debt on, you know, a credit card and you got this debt on a car and you got this debt on a house. I'll tell you what, you know, why don't you take your family on vacation? It's been a busy, stressful season. You've worked really hard to get where you are. You know, maybe you should give a little bit. You know, there's a lady I know. She, just, she only has $2 left or whatever it is. But our financial advice is almost always, don't invest that, right? Don't do that crazy thing. But what is crazy to me as I read the Bible and God gives me his vision for life is Jesus tells the stories and the exact opposite of what I would say in my flesh. Jesus tells a story and one day he's sitting in the temple and there's this widow who comes in. She's a little bit old lady. She drops in her two last coins. That's not quite $2. It's her two last coins though. And there's all these Pharisees and religious people coming in, and they're dropping in big bags of money, making a big show about everything they're giving. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, that lady gave more than any of them. And they're a little bit baffled like us. What do you, can, how can you possibly say she gave more, Jesus? And he says, it's simple. She gave everything she had left. But how, how in the world, Jesus... Could we encourage that, inspire that? How in the world? Why wouldn't you stand up and say, don't do it? God provided by giving you those two coins. Go eat. And Jesus says, no. See what she did in that moment. Is she entrusted God's vision for her life, that God cares for her and will provide for her. But what about the other guy? The guy who was blessed with a lot? Jesus tells a story about him too. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Then Jesus told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. So what do we learn off the get-go? He's already rich, and he has a farm that's producing for him. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build One's, Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, don't you love when you refer to yourself as that? You have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry, and redo your kitchen. It's in the Greek. It is, you know. Now, what this guy has said to himself is what so many of us have said to ourselves. I lived in Colorado when the housing market boomed. When I got there, people were buying and flipping their homes every couple years. So you'd buy kind of a single-family home, and then you'd make twenty or thirty thousand dollars because everybody was moving there from Arizona, California, Las Vegas. They were selling their homes, making a ton of money, moving to Colorado, driving the market through the roof. But everybody was buying their house, flipping it, buying a bigger house, flipping it, buying a bigger house, flipping it, and that was going great until about 2007 or 8 or so, and everything went. And all of a sudden, these homes people bought they were upside down on. But everything was going wonderful because the thought was always, this is never going to stop. It's just going to keep going. So they're just buying more, buying bigger. I mean, there were Home Depots and Lows popping up everywhere because people were just buying and improving and making it bigger and better and more awesome all the time. Except the problem is this man doesn't have a vision for his life beyond simply be healthy, wealthy, and blessed. And the reason Jesus tells the story is not because it's a real person, but because it represents so many of us so easily. Bob Goff says this in his book, Love Does. He says, I used to be afraid of failing at something that really mattered to me, but now I'm more afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Let me just give you one little tip for today. I'll give you another one in a moment, but let me just give you one, and maybe this is the, the thing you most need to get today. If if you're going to live the way that God intended for you to live, it's going to require that you gain right perspective about where you are. If you're going to live the way that God intended for you to live, it's going to require you to gain right perspective about where you are. That means you're going to honestly have to take a look at where you are and evaluate it for what it really is. Jesus says this, you ready? The truth shall what? What? Now here's the reality, isn't it? I mean like every January to April or if you extend October, when you're sitting down to do your taxes, isn't this like a smack in the face reality? Like how is it we make this much money? We have none left. How is this even possible? And then you go through and you find out how many things are in there. Like how many times did I go to the pumpkin patch? How much did we really spend in Florida? Wait a minute, how many Starbucks did my wife buy? right? It's February, and the credit card statements from Christmas come in, and you go, we spent how much on Christmas? It's the following winter, and you're kind of trying to prep your house for Christmas, and you're packing up last year's gifts and going, I can't believe I spent all this money on these things. Isn't this how it goes? The things of this world die and they fade so quickly and we just have no idea. And we chase, as I said last week, the next shiniest thing, not even realizing that life is simply getting away from us. So here's a question to ask yourself. If somebody else were to sit down and actually go through your bank statement, credit card statements with you, all right? It's just you and them. It's your best friend in the whole world. You trust them completely. You show them everything. If they were to go through and evaluate every dollar going out, would they be able to look at you at the end of it and say, it is clear, it is clear you love people? Again, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to give a statement. This is just between you and your heart, okay? But would somebody else looking at your bank statements and your credit card statements be able to say emphatically, it is obvious this person loves people. I can see it by their bank accounts, by the way they help others when they're sick, By the way, they support others in hours of need. By the way, they give generously to their church and other community organizations. And if the answer is no, realize that is you evaluating you. That person is made up. I just made them up. But if you would say no, that's you looking at your own life and saying, no, it's really not. But here's what Jesus had to say to that same same guy he made up. Luke chapter 12, verse 20. But God said to him, now realize this person's story is made up, but in the story, God speaks to the man. And, the, and God says, You fool! You will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Now, what Jesus is saying here is a few things. Number one, You fool, this is strong language coming from Jesus. Because in the Bible, to be a fool, go read Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. That's where we really see fool language become relevant. A fool is somebody whose life is opposed to the ways of God. It's somebody who's now fast-forwarding to their last day And they're standing before their Father in heaven, and they've not really taken the appropriate steps to evaluate their life and see how they're living. Does my actions line up with my heart? Do my actions really line up with what I want to do and who I want to be? And Jesus says, you're a fool. God blessed you. He gave you a fertile soil with fertile ground and many, many, many crops. And your grandiose idea for how to invest them was to tear down what you had Build bigger so you could store for the future and be lazy now. And then Jesus says, essentially, you will die this very night. This would be, in biblical terms, God pronouncing a judgment on this person. I don't want to make a whole theology out of this little part of the verse. But in essence, what Jesus is saying is there is a moment in all of our lives where God calls us into account. Where God says, okay, I've seen enough. I've seen enough. In this man's case, that's what he is saying. I've seen enough. It is clear to me that even if I give you more, you're not going to change your heart and your attitude towards life. So even though I've given you tremendous blessing, it wasn't enough to get your attention. So now it's gonna come to an end. Let me just ask you a question, rich man. Who's gonna get everything you worked for? Solomon realized this and I can't remember if it's in Ecclesiastes or Proverbs now but I think it's Ecclesiastes he's lamenting this and he's lamenting that even though he built huge vineyards and even though he built huge houses and he developed Israel beyond what anybody had done to that point or possibly even since as he's wrestling through this it's realizing I'm going to pass all of this on to the next generation I'm going to hand all this off to the next generation and they weren't even going to care about the things that I cared about they're going to tear down the vineyards that I built and rebuild their own And that's essentially what Jesus is building on here. You worked hard your whole life for this. Now what? Now what? What's going to be there to show for your hard work? Here's the essence of it. If the essence, the outcome, the fruit of your hard work is more for you, there's no lasting investment. If the essence of your hard work is lives changed, it'll live on. For eternity. Jesus goes on in verse 21 and he says, Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. Depending on your translation of these verses, if you look at the NIV, the NASB, the King James, all those other translations, they come up with some different wording. But you're going to find similar language to something like rich toward God, rich to God, rich relationship with God. I don't love the New Living Translation because by putting it in context of a relationship, I can really get out of what Jesus is saying. In essence, by putting it this way, and that's why I left this translation up here so we could talk through it, I could say, well, you know what? I'm very rich in my relationship with God. I go to worship, I sing, I read my Bible. But the entire context, before and after, everything Jesus says has everything to do with how I live this life in relationship to my money. It doesn't really have a lot to do with whether I pray or read my Bible, Now, I can make that connection to the New Living Translation by saying, if I'm being generous in this life, it's simply because I have connected with my Father's heart and I understand what he wants to do in the world. So, let's ask this question. What does a rich relationship with God look like? I think, in my opinion, it can be summarized in one word. Ready? First, that's it. That was easy, right? That was fairly painless, wasn't it? I believe with all my heart, if I could summarize how to have a rich relationship with God, it would come with this, first. Am I putting God first in my life? Is God first in my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength? Is God first when it comes to my money? Is God first when it comes to my decision making? Is God first? Because see, if God is first, then every decision I make after that comes from Placing God at the center of my life. So when I see a person in need, see if God is first, then God can quickly inspire me and say, I want you to help that person. If God is first, then, then, then when I come across a situation in my community that I know I could do something with, but it's going to require time and energy and sacrifice, then when God directs my life, it's not hard. I've made the first decision already. God, you get my life, and so I'll do whatever is necessary to follow you and be faithful to everything you're telling me to do. See, when God is first, this is one of the ways we practice it in our home, God gets the first of our money every single paycheck. In fact, my wife writes, literally writes that check to Kingsway first. I was just joking though, sometimes um, because I get paid on Monday and Sunday was whatever before, and so sometimes it's awkward because like I get paid on Monday and then my wife gets mad at me because I forget to bring the check in or whatever, and like literally I'm bringing the check in later in the week, but it's always the first that is written. It's written before all the others. Sometimes there are weeks or months where we didn't manage things well. I know, like the guy standing on stage giving you wisdom on this is not always perfect. Hi, my name's Matt Nickus and I try not to be a hypocrite, but anyway... We write that check first, and there's been times where we get to the end of the month and it's, or the end of that paid period, and it's like, uh-oh, we better transfer some savings account money over because we didn't manage well, and God's check is going to get cashed here on Tuesday when the church cashes those checks, and oops, but God's check is always first. God's ministries are always first. People are always first. I'm proud to say, while I'm no money expert, I've made plenty of mistakes. If somebody were to look in on our bank account, I think they would see that I practiced that to the best that I know how. One of the ways that we've done this is um, we've set up a generosity account and in that generosity account, not only do we write our first check to the church, then we write our second checks to the missionaries and mission organizations we support. We have an account. We just put it every, pay, every time I get a paycheck, we put money in an account, and it's just there. It's, like, it's a generosity slush fund, and it is so much fun to spend out of that. It is so much fun to buy meals for people or buy counseling for people who need it, um, to help people with their rent, if that should be the case. Depending on how much money we have in there it dictates how much we can help. And it is so much fun to come across a need and go to my wife and say, Hey, I found this thing. Let's pray about whether God's asking us to do this. But here's the thing. We've already decided, we've already determined that God has called us to be generous. And so we're just planning on it as a part of our life. So that when the need comes, because here's what often happens. You meet somebody in the community, and there's a need there, a real need. And you think to yourself, Oh, I just wish we had the margin to help. Oh, but we're just strapped financially. Why? Well, because we saw that new thing, that shiny thing, that bigger thing, and we decided, well, I don't need a new car. I'm going to buy a new car. I don't need a new kitchen. I'm going to buy a new kitchen. We don't need to go on vacation, but let's do it anyway. And since we don't have the money to afford it all, let's put it on our credit card. Don't worry. I've got this plan about how we're going to pay it all off. Dr. Tim Harlow, who's a pastor up in the Chicagoland area, he says this, debt is a dumb reason to buy things you don't need. He's a little more blunt sometimes than I can be, but I think he's absolutely right. Now once you get this principle of first, everything else starts to flow forward. Look at the very next thing Jesus says in Luke 12 then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, and I'll stop there for a second. What that means is Jesus is talking to the masses. He's telling everybody this story about this rich guy who tears down his barns and builds bigger ones. But now he's turned away from them and he's looked right at the 12 as if to say, you've got to get this. Someday you're gonna teach all of the believers through writing the Bible down. Do not miss what God is saying. That's how important this is. Here's what he said. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. What is worry? What's another word for it? Fear. Fear. Don't be afraid. Have no fear. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. Verse 23 because life is more than food, and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. God feeds them. You are far more valuable to him than any birds. Well, isn't that good news? Can all of your worries, fears, anxieties add a single moment to your life? Pause. Everybody knows the answer to that, right? Because I don't know about you, but I don't always live like I know the answer to that. You ever have sleepless nights, stressed about money? You ever have moments in life where you're just not sure how it's going to work out, and you think you losing sleep is going to fix the problem? You fighting with your spouse surely has to be a solution. And Jesus says, "What are you so stressed out about?" You verse twenty-six. And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, then what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon, King Solomon, all of his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? I am convinced that the fire referred to here is the fire of whatever the last day looks like. Where Jesus teaches us, someday everything you see is going to be burned up. Whatever that means. And the only thing that will last forever are souls and the word of God. That's part of what Jesus is saying. Your soul is going to last forever. Everything you see here is going to be burned up. And yet, God cares for flowers and birds even though they're not even going to live eternally. How much more so you? If he cares for them, he'll care for you. Why do you have so little faith? In other words, what Jesus, is, remember, he's talking to the disciples. Now, don't, I'm sure the masses are listening in, but he's talking to the disciples. Disciples, why do you have so little faith? Why are you so stressed out about whether or not God can meet your needs that you're grabbing and hoarding and holding on to as if your 50 or 60 or 80 years in this life are all there is? But what would happen if you could actually release the grip and open up your hands and say, Father, Help me to see life the way you see it. He goes on in verse 29. So don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your need. Do you know in your life you've never run up against a need that God wasn't already there waiting for you? Let that one blow your mind for a minute, okay? I have a friend who's going through a pretty intense financial struggle in their life right now for a myriad of reasons. But I want my friend to hear this one verse. Your father already knows your need. I find myself often saying to my friend, I don't know when, I don't know how God is going to to, to fix this problem. I don't know what he's got up his sleeve. I only know he's going to. So your job is to be faithful today. How do I do that? It's one word, first. Today, choose to put God first in your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Today, choose to put God first in your bank account. Choose today to put God first, and then let him take care of the rest. But I can't, it doesn't make any sense. If I start putting God first today, how am I going to pay all these bills? I don't know. The widow figured it out, though. You know what it's called? Faith. Because faith and first go together. You can't put God first Unless in faith you're trusting that the one who said, I know all your needs and I will not let you starve. I know all your needs and I will not let you go without shelter and clothing. I know what you need. I'm already at your problem. Years before it was created and you arrived there, I've already figured out the path to meet your needs. And until you can combine faith with first, you'll never have the first. And what will happen is you'll spend the next decade of your life or however many days you have left struggling, struggling to have the faith necessary to trust God today this is why by the way we set up push pay i know for a long time people wrestled with is it appropriate for people to give digitally because they're not showing up i literally we would hear this as pastors all over the united states if people aren't showing up and putting a check or a cash in the box or the bin or the basket or the whatever it is then is that faithfulness to god well you know the thing most people do banking today digitally don't they Most people are doing that. That's why we set this thing up. You can actually text the word Kingsway to 77977. I did it this morning. And send you a link. And if you click the link, you can walk through a very simple process. And if you do that, what we're challenging everybody to do today is to follow through. My wife and I don't use push pay. When I go home today, I'm going to be setting this thing up with her. Because what it allows us to do is take out the money we're giving to God first so that whatever amount we set in there, it's like, okay, this goes to God first so that there's never a situation where we spent the money that God was supposed to get as I did earlier, I told you about, and then we're looking back and going, well, I'm not sure how we're gonna pay God now. (laughs) He's like another creditor who's come knocking on the door like, I need your money. No, no, see, I want want my heart to reflect my giving. So God comes first and all of my spending comes out of that. And I'll tell you what, I I love this quote by Bob Buford in the book Halftime. He says this, For the second half of life to be better than the first, you must take the choice to step outside of the safety of living on autopilot. You must wrestle with who you are, why you believe what you profess to believe about your life, and what you do to provide meaning and structure to your daily activity and relationships. See, if we don't end up structuring our daily activity and relationships or whatever it is, our weekly, bi-weekly, monthly giving to God, then what we do is God becomes second or third or fourth based off whatever we think we need most in the moment. That's why Jesus goes on in verse 31. He says this, Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you most of the things that you need. Come on now, you know I read that wrong, right? I read it wrong on purpose because I think that's the way we view God. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will generally show up when you need him. And on the curve of life, it'll work out in the end. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says if you will be willing to put God first above all else, then God will come through. And you know what he'll do? He'll give you, say it with me, everything you need do you believe that? I'll just be honest for a minute. I don't always believe it. So, I was sitting, I think it was at Starbucks a week or two ago. I had a ton of writing to do with the parent seminar coming up, some other things I'm working on. And uh, it was just like writing, 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 running. I had to get out of the office where I just I, I got to gotta write. But then, you know, you go to Starbucks, the problem is I run into you guys, and I love you, but I don't always get to do the writing and focus. I need to. Focus is a little hard for me, in case you've noticed. So, anyway. This one particular time, I think it was a Starbucks, I kind of moved around to keep moving around. But anyway, um, this really sweet lady comes up to me and she says, hey, I think you're my pastor. I said, oh, do you go to Kingsway? And so we start talking and um, she shares with me what an impact Kingsway has had on her life. And she shares with me how uh, she recently went through um, cancer and it really kind of wrecked her body. But the one thing that stayed consistent in that was her walk with God, that God showed up in such amazing ways. And she started to tell me that life has moved her outside of of the Avon, whatever, Hendricks County area, and that it's really hurting because she tries to get here every Sunday, but every Sunday she can't. She goes online and listens. First thing I want to say before I finish her story is I just want to say, do you realize it's your generous offerings that allow her to do that? And anyway, she, she ended up reaching out to me through Facebook Messenger and said, Pastor, thank you so much for our conversation, blah, blah, blah. She said, I'm really just kind of struggling with, should I keep driving the 30 or 40 minutes or whatever it is to come to Kingsway or, or, or should I move to a church that's closer nearby? And I said, look, it's important for you to find a community you can be plugged into. And if, you, if driving 30, 40 minutes is a hindrance to you being plugged in here, then find a church closer to home and be free. There's no guilt in that. You can always go online and keep watching or whatever. Just realize, by the way, do you know the first thing she said is, you're shorter in person than I thought you would be. Just remember, I'm much taller on your computer screen. (laughs) Anyway, then she asked this. So if I switch to this other church, should I keep giving my tithe the king's way? Oh, man, I love that heart. I love that. Because she said, I so love this church that has impacted my life, that has changed my life. I so love what God is doing there. It has blessed me, and I want it to bless others. And so I want to give generously. I want to give generously to what God is doing. And I said, absolutely, you should. No, I'm just kidding, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, I can't tell you what God's telling you to do with your money. That's a decision every believer has to make as they wrestle with God. God, what does it mean to put you first? I said, generally, I would tell somebody they need to invest in the church they're attending. I said, I could tell you, Kingsway's in a, a bit of a tight financial season. I wouldn't argue if you wanted to keep giving it, but you probably should invest it wherever you're attending, wherever that is. And she thanked me. Later in the service, um, I had no idea. I had no idea. She didn't either that she was going to be our dollar club member for this month. So at the end of the service, you're going to get to watch her story, and it's going to come alive a little bit for you as you get to hear the generous heart of this woman and all that God is doing in her life through you. I love being a part of a church like that. Here's what Jesus says as he closes out his wisdom for us. Verse, chapter 12, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the persons of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. crazy if you were to talk to that widowed woman at the very beginning who had her last two coins or dollars how many of us would tell her don't do it but yet she knew something we only wish we knew and that is simply this giving it generously (laughs) stores up a bigger 401k in heaven than you could ever envision here on earth church the same is true for us today Here's what I want to do. I just want to pray. We're going to take communion, communion service, go ahead out. But I want our prayer to be one of surrender today. So as they're headed out of the room, I'm waiting for them to get out of your seat. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Lord, as we celebrate Veterans Day today, we celebrate the hearts and the lives of those who sacrificed that we might have the freedoms we have here in this country. And we thank you for their example. Father, their example is based first and foremost on your example as the one who came and gave up his own life that we might live. Oh, God, this, this is hard. God, it's easier to give you an hour or two or three on a Sunday. It's easier to encourage somebody with a word at work or at a sports game. It's easier to send an email or write a card, even though that takes time today, we seem to have so little love. God, it is so hard to put you first in our finances. And the reason it's so hard, God, is because we have all these dreams and ideas about things we could do here. And sometimes it's hard, God, because we have really invested poorly, leading to this moment And now we don't have the resources we need to do the things we believe you're calling us to do. So God, while in one message, we're never gonna get all the wisdom we need to correct everything that might be wrong, God, would you help us right here as we engage in communion? God, would you help us to surrender? To choose to actually put you first in our lives, especially in our finances. And that God, whenever you say go, whenever you say give, whenever you say move, that God, we would literally just follow because you're directing our lives as you most see fit. God, when we came to you in faith, surrendered to you in baptism, we were doing in that moment is practicing with our bodies what we gave you in our heart. So, God, today we ask that you would unite our minds, that, God, we would think about you and your kingdom and your people and what means most to you first. And, God, I pray that you would transform this community and world through us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.